You're listening to Over the Top, a great war podcast. The date was May the 7th, 1915. The time was 0500 hours as Cunard's British ocean liner, the Lusitania, was passing the southern tip of Ireland bound for Liverpool from New York. The sun was having a tough time breaking through the heavy fog that morning. At 0800 hours, Captain William Turner ordered for depth sounding. The ship's speed was ordered to be reduced to 18 knots, then down to 15, and when the speed had been reduced, the order to sound the foghorn was given. The Lusitania cautiously moved through the Atlantic's heavy fog that morning. Around 11.55, the sun finally broke through the thick layer of fog, lighting up the sea. A message was brought to Captain Turner from the British Admiralty that read, U-boats active in the southern part of this Irish Channel. The German submarine U-20, commanded by Captain Lieutenant Walter Schweiger, had been lurking around this part of the waters for a couple days. On May 6th, he and the crew were successful in sinking two freighter ships. On May 7th, U-20 was lurking around the southern part of the Irish coast, like a hungry shark hunting for its next kill. U-20's fuel was low, and its torpedo inventory had been depleted down to three, and two of those were reserved for the ride home, which Schweiger had ordered the crew to prepare for. But then, at 13.20 hours, U-20's chief engine room, Artificia Frederick Selma, spotted a massive silhouette on the horizon. Welcome back to Over the Top, a great war podcast. This is episode 30, And it'll be about the sinking of the Lusitania. If you're wondering what this had to do with the Great War, it actually has a lot to do with it. It's not just a story about the sinking of a ship. Politically, there's so much more. This event, which some will consider a war crime, will get the full attention from the United States. But before I get into all that, let me get into a couple notes for the show. At the end of this episode, I'm going to tell you how to enter a drawing to win a book that I'll be giving away to show my appreciation to my fans for supporting the show. Actually, it'll be two books. I got two copies of the same book to give out to two listeners. I'll tell you what the book is and how to enter, and that'll be at the end of this episode. And why am I waiting till the end of the episode? Why not just tell you now? I don't know. Just, Just seemed like a fun thing to do. Next thing I'd like to do is tell you what I'm drinking for this episode. I'm having a nice glass of barrel-aged Don Q rum. Because this episode involves an old high seas tale like Captain Ahab chasing Moby Dick. Actually, it'll be nothing like Moby Dick, but I think you can appreciate where I'm going with that. And a huge shout out to listener Peter Church who kindly donated to the drinking funds. He reached out to me with nothing but great feedback for the podcast and said, I'd like to buy you a drink. And I said, 
I would be obliged. Cheers, Peter. This toast goes out to you. Let me get another one. That's good. All right. And that's it. Just a couple show notes. Let's say we get the show on the road. Now, before I get back into the afternoon of May 7th of 1915, let me rewind a bit to give you a little history behind all of this. Before the 1890s, the Brits dominated the seas. But now that Germany was unified, they became not only a serious maritime competitor, they were also being viewed as a threat. The British Empire was shocked when Germany launched four state-of-the-art luxury liners nicknamed the Four Flyers. Wilhelm II was hell-bent on surpassing Britain by having the world's most powerful navy. The British also had another, I won't call it a threat, but a looming problem. The Americans. J. Pierpoint Morgan formed the International Merchantile Marine Company in 1901, aiming to monopolize the North Atlantic passenger route. The IMM had snatched up several cruiser lines, including the famous White Star who owned the RMS Titanic. The IMM made a lucrative offer to Cunard Lines, Britain's top player in the game at the time, but the offer was declined. But there was a problem. Cunard was lacking in finances to build any new ships, while at the same time there was a demand for new vessels in case a future war broke out. In 1903, the British government agreed to give Cunard a loan in the amount of 2.6 million with an interest rate of only 2.75 to be paid in 20 years. I'm not sure what that would be worth today since a shilling isn't a legal currency. The internet says it's equivalent to five pence, which that's a little over six cents, but I don't know how valid that is. If anybody knows the answer to that, I would love to know. Maybe you can message me and I'll give you a shout out. With this loan, Cunard built two new superliners, the RMS Mauritania and the RMS Lusitania. In 1906, the British Admiralty predicted that Germany would soon have the second largest navy. New types of weapons were being developed along with ships that could seek out and destroy cruisers and battleships. The British Admiralty's prophecy came true. In December of 1906, the German Imperial Navy took command of a new type of machine from Krupp's Germania in Kiel. It was U-1, Germany's first submarine. This sparked a new arms race, an arms race for the sea. Emerged from this was the hunter and killer of the ocean, the submarine. The greatest military threat to vessels and ships. Aside from biscuits and gravy, this created a whole new scare to naval warfare. At first, the submarine was widely frowned upon between both Germany and Great Britain. Many believed it was just a craze that took funds away from traditional naval fighting ships. A lot of people believe that attention should have been focused on building more super dreadnoughts. Which, let's be honest, those were equally as important. Those who were skeptical just weren't convinced how dangerous the submarine could be in the water. By 1909, German admirals came to an agreement that the submarine was indeed the best possible offensive weapon against a battleship. But when the Great War kicked off, 
The main use of the submarines was to disrupt enemy supply lines moving through the water. Reasonable considerations were supposed to be shown for any neutral ship on a humanitarian mission, such as the Red Cross or any hospital ship. The rule was governed at the Hague Convention in 1907. However, any neutral ship moving in the zone of the North Sea between Britain and Germany would be treated as an enemy and would be considered fair game. In August of 1914, shortly after the war broke out, the British implemented a naval blockade against Germany in the North Sea. Naturally, this didn't sit well with the Germans. Wilhelm basically responded with, all right, game on. There was fear amongst the Germans that if the Imperial Navy did sink a neutral vessel, which would be carrying Americans, this would possibly provoke a declaration of war. Even knowing that, on February 4th, 1915, Admiral Hugo von Pohl, the commander of the German High Seas Fleet, published a warning. It read the following. 1. The waters around Great Britain and Ireland, including the whole of the English Channel, are hereby declared to be a war zone. From 18 February onwards, every enemy merchant vessel encountered in this zone will be destroyed nor will it always be possible to avert the danger thereby threatened to the crew and passengers. 2. Neutral vessels also will run a risk in the war zone, because in view of the hazards of sea warfare and the British authorization of 31 January of the misuse of neutral flags, it may not always be possible to prevent attacks on enemy ships from harming neutral ships. That's an aggressive warning and some would consider the warning fair. And thus, the war games at sea had begun. But there were supposed to be rules. One was called the cruiser rule. A surface vessel was required to fly their own flag, and if stopped and confronted, they were to allow their ship to be boarded and searched, which in turn could be sunk or confiscated and taken to their own port as a prize. Great Britain said to hell with that rule and letting the Germans seize their ships. They ordered all merchantmen to ram or run down any submarine that surfaced and attempted to implement this so-called cruiser rule. These were the kind of war games being played, often gambling with civilian lives. Germany gave a warning. Any ships in the war zone would likely be fired upon. Everyone was well aware of this. Yet Cunard Lines, Great Britain, and America still led its ships and civilians to freely sail the dangerous tides. Germany was clearly violating the rights of neutral shipping to the freedom of the seas. But this is where the line starts to get hazy, gray, however they call it. Does that violation also apply to Great Britain when they blockaded Germany from the North Sea at the start of the war? Germany had every right to move about the ocean, just like Great Britain did. And this all ties into the conspiracy of the sinking of the Lusitania, but I'll go into that in a bit. I'll throw out some estimated numbers regarding the damage German submarines did during this war, just to give you an idea of the chaos. In March of 1915, six U-boats sunk 85,000 tons of Allied shipping. Between May, June, and July of 1915, 300,000 tons of Allied cargo ships were lost. 
and the total amount lost during the Great War for the Allies was around 11 million tons of shipping. And that's just the Allies. You can imagine what kind of damage the war did in total just at sea. By the spring of 1915, Germans who immigrated to the United States were starting to get concerned about the German warning to the Allied fleet and the civilians. Their fear was, if Germany sunk a vessel carrying passengers, especially with women and children on board, and them being American, this could wake a sleeping giant. And if America declared war on Germany, what would this mean for them? Many Germans who immigrated opened up businesses. Would they be targeted by mobs? These decisions didn't only weigh on the military, as is the case for nearly all wars. The day had come. On May 1st, 1915, the Lusitania was docked and ready to depart from Pier 54, New York, just a couple blocks from today's bustling food hall called Chelsea Market. A really cool place I recommend visiting if you're there. The luxury liner had just arrived in New York on April 24th, making its 201st transatlantic voyage. There would be a mix of passengers from first-class actors, writers, and the wealthy down to third-class immigrants, all of whom were saying their goodbye to those who weren't making the voyage with them. There was all sorts of cargo being loaded from meat, to metals, to medical supplies, furs, and other foods and oils. And there was other cargo being loaded that was kept on the hush. Cargo intended to support the Allies in the war. Remember, there was a shortage of artillery shells, ammo, and other supplies at the front. America was like that kid in class who always knew the answers and would have their hand frantically in the air. I can help with that for a price. Interesting fact, America produced a lot of supplies like ammunition during the war. The majority of unexploded ordnance that still remains throughout the Western Front today was American made. I mean, think about it. Munition factories in the U.S. at the time of hearing about the shortage immediately saw dollar signs and they began to crank out shells for the Allies. And it's believed these shells being cranked out weren't being properly inspected between the assembly line and the shipping department. There were mixed emotions between the passengers preparing to board. Some were excited, loved the adventure of the sea, thought the whole threat was nothing but malarkey. And others were scared. They read about the dangers lurking in the waters. But some didn't have a choice. They needed to get from point A to point B. The German embassy continued to warn all passengers. They stressed anybody traveling on Allied vessels did so at their own risk. Germany would later try to justify their actions by saying they did give a fair warning. The official notice from the German embassy in Washington, D.C. read the following. Travelers intended to embark on the Atlantic voyage are reminded that a state of war exists between Germany and her allies and Great Britain and her allies that the zone of war includes the waters adjacent to the British Isles, that, in accordance with formal notice given by the Imperial German government, vessels flying the flag of Great Britain or of any of her allies are liable to destruction in those waters and that travelers sailing in the war zone on ships of Great Britain or her allies do so at their own risk. 
Imperial German Embassy, Washington, D.C., April 22nd, 1915, end quote. The warning is there. In all fairness, they did provide a warning. The warning that the German embassy put out was in the papers on the morning that the Lusitania was scheduled to depart for Liverpool. Many people didn't even believe the warning was genuine. People like Charles Sumner, who was a representative of Cunard in New York. Sumner had a couple reasons for taking this warning as nothing but hogwash. One, just days before there was a $15,000 demand to Cunard that if they didn't pay up, this person would print a warning. Second, Sumner believed a ship of this class could outrun any submarine, and if they spotted one, they would just put it in full speed. And he was right about that. For submarines back then, it was all about position and timing of a torpedo. Its speed had no match for a ship like the Lusitania. Even with his reasoning, I think it was ignorant of him not to take this threat seriously. There's a war going on, and submarines were already causing havoc. Germany did declare the area of travel a war zone. This seems odd to me why he took the threat with such little regard. Regardless of what people took seriously and what they didn't, the Lusitania was about to embark on its final voyage. And I was going to talk about the passengers, and it's not that I don't find the history interesting, but I'm trying to keep this war related. The book I read talks about the rich and famous who were aboard and a couple of the third-class passengers, but it's not something I want to go into, at least for this podcast. But if you are interested in, in that, there's plenty of books about the Lusitania. One I would recommend because I like the author is Dead Wake by Eric Larson. I haven't read it. I already had a book about the Lusitania, but I have read Devil in the White City and In the Garden of Beasts, and I really enjoyed them both. Larson, in my opinion, is a great writer. So I'm not going to talk about the people on board, but I will tell you this, which you might find interesting. I'm going to post a YouTube link in in this episode's description. It's the only and real footage of the Lusitania departing New York on its last fateful journey. I actually thought that was kind of cool to see. As the cameraman is filming from Pier 54, it's claimed that you can see the American author Albert Hubbard and his wife spotting the camera and waving. It's at the three minute mark. Albert and his wife Alice both perished on the 7th of May. Now, just to give you an idea of the size of the ship, it had around 800 to 900 crew members, around 1,200 passengers, and the ship consumed 1,000 tons of coal per day. That's a lot of coal. The day before Lusitania left port with all its glamour and passengers, U-20 departed from its base in Ebden on the north coast of Germany. The mission was to seek and destroy as many British ships as possible. A quick bit of history on the career of U-20. She was commissioned in August of 1913 and ended in November of 1916 when the boat ran aground in Denmark, which the crew blew the boat apart. In the time of her havoc, U-20 sunk 145,830 tons of Allied ships. On May 5th, U-20 moved in position at the southern tip of Ireland, not far off Kinsale. At this point, there was 15 U-boats patrolling the waters trying to bag as many kills as possible. Needless to say, these parts of the waters were no joke. 
On May 6th, the Lusitania steamed right into the war zone. This was the same day U-20 scored two kills by sinking the British ships, Candidate and the Centurion. In both cases, no lives were lost. All crew members abandoned ship. Now, let me fast forward a bit to May 7th. The time was 1320 hours. Lusitania's massive silhouette had been spotted by Friedrich Selmer. Schweiger had moved up on the conning tower to take a look with his binoculars. He estimated the target was 12 to 14 miles away. He ordered to dive to periscope depth at 11 meters. The boat was moving at a max speed, which was 9 knots to get into attack position. 35 feet below the water surface, U-20 began to stalk its prey. At this point, the Lusitania's crew and passengers were feeling at ease, almost as if they were in the clear or the home stretch. Captain William Turner caught sight of the black and white lighthouse, the old head of Kinsale, a sight he was familiar with. Also, the Lusitania had received orders from the Admiralty to keep the ship at a good speed and move in a zigzag pattern to decrease their chances of being hit by a torpedo. Turner ignored the order to zigzag. There was also supposed to be an escort by the Royal Navy, like Cunard Lines told the passengers there would be. There was no escort. After 2 p.m., Friedrich Selmer called the commander to the periscope. At first, the Lusitania's massive hulk with its funnels appeared to belong to several ships. But then, as the lens came into focus, he realized it was one large vessel. Schweiger called to his pilot to verify a cruiser with four funnels. He was told it was either the Lusitania or the Morantania. But more importantly, both were listed as troop carriers. Schweiger gave the order to load torpedo. But then his heart sank. The Lusitania had turned course. Schweiger knew there was no chance of catching up with this size of a ship. U-20 speed was no match for the Lusitania. Then, suddenly, in almost an instant, the situation changed again. Schweiger couldn't believe his eyes. The Lusitania altered its course again, giving U-20 a perfect angle for a shot. It was now 1410 hours. The range was 700 meters. Schweiger gave the order to fire. A hissing sound shrieked through the ship as the torpedo left the tube, giving it a jolt. The G-type weapon had cleared the tube of the ship and was streaking through the ocean at 38 knots, 3 meters deep, heading right for the superliner. A fishing boat named Wanderer had been at sea for weeks, fishing for mackerel. Skipper William Ball put one man on watch as the other crew members went down in their bunks to catch up on sleep. Tommy Woods had taken over the watch at 1 p.m. About an hour had passed and he spotted the massive four funneled ocean liner approaching in the distance. About three miles away from the Wanderer, Tommy gazed at the massive ship with amazement as it got closer. Lusitania was about a half a mile away when all of a sudden, without warning, a massive explosion and boom changed the mood. The first explosion was immediately followed up by a second explosion. Tommy immediately yelled, Torpedo! almost unconsciously. 
Every crew member from the Wanderer came up to see what had just happened. They could see a massive cloud of smoke and the Lusitania began to tilt to the starboard side. Right before the explosion, 18-year-old Leslie Morton from the crew was looking out on the starboard bow and spotted a sharp streaking line of bubbles making its way right for the ship. He shouted in the megaphone, Torpedoes coming on the starboard side! Seconds later, able seaman Thomas Quinn in the crow's nest sounded the alarm over the ship's telephone, but just then the torpedo hit. The warning was too late. Captain William Turner later recalled the first explosion was loud and deafening and slammed doors. Then there was a second explosion not long after. The massive ocean liner then rocked and swayed violently. It was reported that an eerie silence and confusion came about the passengers. Captain Turner then ordered the lifeboats down level to the rail after realizing the ship took a heavy blow that it couldn't recover from. She was going to sink. Turner was yelling at this point to abandon ship. It was going down fast. Because of the tilt of the ship after being hit, all the lifeboats on the port side were swung inbound and couldn't be launched. The lifeboats weighed five tons and launching them wasn't easy. The release pin had to be hammered out. The starboard lifeboats now angled outwards. They would be tricky to launch. And to top this off, the portable life rafts were under the lifeboats. Turner knew the situation was dire, but didn't think the ship would be going down as quick as it was. He ordered Captain Anderson not to lower any of the lifeboats until the ship had lost momentum and would then be considered safe. Passengers were now in a panic starting to fill into the lifeboats. The crew ordered them out until it was safe to launch, but they refused. They were desperate for safety. The lifeboats began to rock and some tipped over, spilling the passengers into the water. Actually, at this point, there was quite a few people in the water, whether they fell in or they jumped in. The Lusitania's stern began to settle back and a surge of water flooded the bridge, sweeping Turner out the door and off the ship. He would later be recovered alive but unconscious. Leslie Morton, the 18-year-old who first spotted the torpedo, he signed on with his brother John, basically just a party every time the Lusitania made dock. They were young, they wanted to see the world, and they wanted a party. Leslie was now helping passengers into the lifeboats. He reported later on that he spotted a fishing boat in the distance approaching. That was the Wanderer. It was later reported that Leslie and his brother John helped many people board the lifeboats in those frantic minutes. At the Old Head Lighthouse in Kinsale, six-year-old George Henderson was enjoying a picnic with his family when they seen in the distance a big ball of smoke come from this massive ship. Several minutes later, it was tilted with the propellers out of the water. Then, it disappeared into the Atlantic. It only took 18 minutes from the time the torpedo hit the Lusitania until it went completely underwater. 1,198 people died in the sinking of the Lusitania. 94 of those were children. Those who weren't able to make it into lifeboats clung to anything that could float for about four hours in the frigid Atlantic Ocean until they could be rescued. The Wanderer and its crew were able to save 150 people. This was a tragedy, 
But now I want to discuss the conspiracies and everything that happened after. First and most importantly, let's keep in mind there was a war going on. This area was declared a war zone. There was a warning, and Cunard still let the Lusitania sail sail away with passengers. Now, let's pretend in the aftermath there's a trial in a courtroom. The trial of Captain William Turner, which there actually was, but, but stay with me on this. Then you have Schweiger and the Imperial Navy and the British Admiralty on trial. All of them on trial to see who's at fault. Captain William Turner was blamed for ignoring the Admiralty's order by moving at full speed and in a zigzag pattern. Turner's defense was it was too foggy to move at that speed. This part is actually true. Turner was put on trial for this. Turner was found not guilty. Turner was following orders by setting sail out of New York. Turner was aware of the secret cargo that was loaded onto the ship. Turner knew there was no second torpedo fired. That information could destroy the reputation of the British Navy. Did that play a role in Turner being found not at fault? Did they not want him to go public with this information? Now, the British Admiralty is on the stand. Let's say Churchill in particular. Why did they load a passenger liner with munitions and equipment for the war with the civilians on that same boat? Churchill knew this information could destroy them, and it's believed he persuaded the judge to find Germany 100% at fault, that this was purely an act of evil. And that really did happen. Now, again, people's hands get dirty in war really quick. And Churchill had plenty of dirt on his hands. Now Germany takes the stand, which they obviously didn't. This part is made up. They killed 1,198 innocent civilians. Should this not be considered a war crime? Germany's defense the whole time was, we warned them. This was a declared war zone. It's hard to make an argument out of this because they did give multiple warnings. And they did declare this a war zone. Britain blockaded the North Sea, so Germany felt they had the right to go off on the beaten path because this was war. And most people won't talk about how Britain brought a submarine into the Dardanelles on May 1st, sinking an Ottoman troop ship, which had 6,000 soldiers aboard. Yes, I understand they were soldiers, but they're still people. Germany was told the Lusitania and the Mauritania were troop transports. If it was carrying troops and not passengers, would we even be talking about this? In the case of Germany committing a war crime, or was this a tragedy, is it's, it's a tough call. I'll let you make your own verdict on this case. Now, the next thing is the conspiracy and America, which go hand in hand. See, some believe that the British Admiralty allowed this to happen to draw America into the war. I'm not saying the British Admiralty didn't allow this. Again, talk about dirty hands. But it's a conspiracy. We don't know the truth. I will say this, though. I don't believe this caused America to enter the war. Yes, I do believe it opened their eyes. It awakened the sleeping giant. But since America didn't enter the war until 1917... I can't say this was the straw that broke the camel's back. 
See, when war broke out, President Woodrow Wilson did his best to keep Americans out. His policies were to stay out of foreign affairs. He wanted America to be the neutral or viewed as the peacekeepers. America had its share of its own bloodshed since the American Civil War. Even after the Lusitania sunk with Americans on board, Wilson managed to keep America's soldiers out of the war until April of 1917. It's one big melting pot of conspiracy. And in the end, the only true victims of this event were the innocent civilians that died. Unfortunately, innocent civilians have always been a part of casualty statistics during war. And that's the sinking of the Lusitania in a nutshell. Extremely tragic. Again, if this is the type of history you enjoy, there's plenty of books written about this event. Okay, let me talk about the book giveaway. Since there was such a great turnout for episode 29, the Between the Lines interview, to show my appreciation to the OTT listeners, I'm going to give away two copies of the book. To enter the drawing, you have to either be on Facebook or Instagram, and you have to like or follow Over the Top and the author of Between the Lines, Nadine Amoros, A-M-O-R-O-S. You'll find a post by Over the Top once this episode releases, which it's been posted because you're listening to this right now. Just comment in either of the two platforms saying, enter me to win. On the next episode, I'll announce both winners and I'll send the books off. Note, if your name was picked, I'll send a message to, to you through whichever platform you are on. Requesting an address to send the book to, I'll give you about a week or so, but if I don't hear back, I'll have to pick another name. Super simple. And if your name isn't picked, I highly encourage you to go onto Amazon and grab yourself a copy of this book. It's a great read. Nadine and her husband did a fantastic job with this book. Nadine's husband, John Paul, is a super fan of this kind of history. He's been extremely kind digging up hard-to-find information with a side project and possibly something special for the future. So please go check out the book by Nadine Amoros, Between the Lines. Folks, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you're in good health and staying safe. And until the next episode, take care, everyone. <laughs>